Welcome to Strategies for Turbulent Times with your hosts, Matthew Werner and Dr. Kathy Greenberg, here to help you stare down adversity, adapt, improvise, and overcome the challenges you are facing in your own life. Now, here are Dr. Kathy and Captain Matthew. Welcome to Strategies for Turbulent Times. I'm happy to be here today with my co-host, Matthew Warner. We have a great guest for you today, and we're going to focus on some of the biggest challenges that we have in today's environment, both in our public safety professionals who are coming into our agencies, trying to get up to speed quickly, and also in the communities that we're serving, because as Matthew and I have learned, uh, in fact, we just came back from the, the Bay Area we are in an environment right now that is not only VUCA, volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and ambiguous, but it is getting more and more banny, brittle, anxious, negative, and absolutely inconceivable. It's amazing to me that we are in a struggle right now, not only with ourselves, but with our environment. And what I mean by that is, as you know, uh, we've had our friend from Six Seconds on the show, uh, Josh Friedman, and we talked about the emotional intelligence, the temperament globally of what is going on in, in the entire universe. And we know that we've lost, if not five or more emotional intelligence points, which means that we are easier to hijack, we are easier to take off task, we are much quicker to become, I'll say, stressed and frazzled. Uh, we do tend to have more of a negative mindset due to the circumstances we're living in, and we expect everyone around us to behave in a way that is normal, when we are everything but normal. I call it Abby normal. Uh, Matthew, before we bring our guest on uh, to talk about the biggest challenges, which is to become part of the solution, I love your perspective on where you see the world is coming out of uh, TAC Ops East and now going into the Arama Conference uh, that we are celebrating uh, as an inaugural program with Dr. Mitch Davidi and the National Klan and Staff College, one of our big sponsors. You know, we are trying to do so much to help the public safety environment and the communities they serve. I'd love to get your perspective here. Well, I'm going to break the ice here because that was a very somber beginning to this conversation there. It's Kat. a big conversation. It is this a, big, is a conversation. big conversation. Well, so first of all, to the audience, and thank you for uh, joining in. Um, happy, happy Friday. It is Friday, everybody. So <laughs> be happy about it. You know, hopefully everybody's in a good place. Uh, looking forward to the weekend. But to answer your question, Kat, um, you know, the challenges are, they're high um, on every different level, from recruiting, recruiting to, um, to um, you know, just this quality of life for the, uh, for the operational uh, law enforcement expert, um, as well as the administrative law enforcement expert. Um, but uh, just, I think in a lot of, fields, uh, it's very challenging these days. But uh, like I started off with, happy, happy Friday. 
you got to look at the positives. Try to look at positives. Um, and if you can't, then look for somebody that you will bring you up there. Well, I think John is that person. Uh, John, John Basinger is our guest today. And he joins us to share insights on a courageous career and becoming part of that solution. And one of the things that, that I'm learning is that maybe our community leaders and our politicians should listen to the people who are out there really doing the work and making the difference, like Lieutenant John Basinger. And I just want to say that he has served as a patrol officer, a patrol supervisor, a SWAT team operator, SWAT team leader, SWAT team commander, and um, he's been involved in multiple uh, police action shootings, over 250 SWAT operations, uh, in addition to being with teams that helped in these operations, including the FBI and ATF. He is um, he's a certified senior instructor by the Indiana Law Enforcement Training Board. He holds a Force Science Taser International Certification and attended the FBI SWAT School with Credentials in Defensive Tactics, one of my favorite subjects, ground fighting, and physical fitness. He earned multiple commendations and awards throughout his 26-year career. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you guys doing this morning? Uh, we're, bra- we're breathing. <laughs> we're still afloat. That's a plus. Yeah, That's a plus. You know, after I listened <laughs> well, no. to you, uh, I listened to you read my bio, and what come to my mind immediately was, I'm old. <laughs> you know? Hey, hey, sorry, John, to interrupt you. Now I'm the PI, the professional interrupter. Um, if anybody's seen John, you would never guess his age because he looks about 30 years younger than what, what he actually is. That's what people say about I, me, John. So I think you and I should just, you know, get over this old stuff. I call myself the OG of coaching. So I agree with that. Uh, you know, as, as, you're only as old as you feel. And some days I feel really old and, and other days I don't. So I'll take it. All right. So one of the things we like to talk about is um, a little bit about who influenced you and who who made you the human being you are today. Yeah, uh, you know, I the first person that I have to, to, to mention is my mom. My parents were divorced when I was when I was pretty little. Um, and my mom was kind of a single mom most of the time. And, and she gave me the work ethic, I think, which is what's carried me on. Um, you know, it was a funny story. I was going to go to college. I was all set to be an architect. I was ready to go. My dad had a, a massive heart attack and open heart surgery my senior year, right before graduation. And when it come down to paying for college, he's like, I don't have the money. So I was like, I'll show you guys. I ran and, and joined the, the Marine Corps and off I went. Um, but then when I came back, uh, I, I tried to find out what was the next step for me. And, uh, there's a couple of guys that were, were really big mentors and, and still are to, for me today. Uh, Darren Sparks, he's a, a former chief SWAT operator. Um, Steve Guthrie, same thing. He, he went on to work at the Indian Law Enforcement Academy for almost 20 years. These guys served as mentors to me. In fact, Steve Guthrie is still a mentor to me. I'm on my way to uh, obtaining my master's instructor level here in Indiana, and, and he's been gracious enough to be a mentor to me in that. One of the things that I will say about both these men are, are not only the outstanding professionals, but talking about family men and, and men that are 
grounded and, and, you know, try to live life the right way. And, and I, I need that a lot. So those are, you know, those are a few that really had an influence on me. No, I think, well, thank you for sharing that. That's there, a nice John. testimonial to Absolutely. the people out there who, who you're giving that love to. And I think that's one of the things we need to get better at, um, especially uh, as we mature is giving the love to those people who gave us the courage and the brilliance to become who we want to be. And congratulations uh, on that, uh, that masterful uh, certification, because uh, I know even in my industry, as, as we get more into our craft, uh, becoming, you know, a, a master class member is, is quite an elite uh, invitation. So shout out to you. Thank you. So, Johnny, uh, so far we've talked about education and, you know, the growth and the mentorship, which is critical for a successful career. And I and I, I I hit on that because absolutely uh, one of the biggest things that I have found in both my career as well as you know speaking with law enforcement experts like yourself, the mentorship is not always easy. Um, that's that's obvious. But having a direct and an indirect way of mentoring is what uh, we're working on to to help others, the next generations understand on the importance of finding that mentor, but also uh, giving that, uh, that feedback to that mentor as you, as you see what they're doing. And I call it planting seeds. Um, nothing rocket science. Um, it's planting seeds. And not, you know, all too often we're doing stuff and we are mentoring people, um, and then we just watch them grow. So appreciate that. Now, you spent a long time with law enforcement and, and also with the Marine Corps, um, can you describe to the audience uh, of a certain time, and this doesn't have to just be one time, but just say an example of when you got derailed off your expectations and what your vision was for your career, but also having the outside, um, what do we call them, cat attackers, um, just, just life, <laughs> what do we call it, just reality of how life is when, when you get derailed. And um, how you got through that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of starts right out of when I got out of the Marine Corps. I was married. I had a couple of young kids. Um, like I said, I, I, my mother installed a pretty pretty good work ethic in me, so I had a couple of jobs. And I, but I really didn't have a career. But I was, you know, plugging along to make ends meet. Um, unfortunately, I went through a divorce, which was a pretty rough time. You know, and uh, I was working at a fitness center where I was the operations manager, but I wasn't making a whole lot of money. I was really happy because I was training people and working out, and it was something that I was really passionate about, but it wasn't paying the bills. So uh, while I was going through a divorce, I was kind of down, and I saw where our police department was hiring. So I, I, I applied, and um, I really applied because not just because I was looking for a career, but I was also looking for that camaraderie like that I had in the Marine Corps and that esprit de corps and, you know, that brotherhood. So that, you know, that motivated me to do that. Then I, I went to, I went through the process, was fortunate enough to get hired in, in 1997. I went to the Indian Law Enforcement Academy and I'm, I'm geared up. I'm, I'm stoked because it's going to be like boot camp again. And I need that in my life. And I go to the first day and, we get into formation and we're in formation and they, they ask how many people have prior 
military experience and, you know, like maybe 15% of the class raises their hand and uh, we start doing some facing movements. And I think of that 15%, some people might've been lying because we were really poor at facing movements. So we, they put us all in push-up position and I was like really, really stoked then because I was like, here we go. This is what I needed. I'd like to be pushed. Uh, we did five push-ups and then we were recovered and I knew right away that this wasn't uh, Marine Corps boot camp. And so I had to find another way to challenge myself. So right. they started talking about an honor program. You could graduate the academy as an honor graduate. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's it for me. What do I got to do? And uh, the first thing they said was, well, you have to really excel at the, at the physical fitness test. I was like, check. That's not a big deal. Next was you had to shoot expert with your firearm. Like, man, that, now we're in my wheelhouse. I'm good. I'm good. And then the final thing was like, hey, you had, uh, well, you had to get no gigs. I was like, that's cool. You know what I mean? I can handle that. I'll be, I, I know how to walk the line. But the final thing was the academic thing. You had to have a 95%. And I, I kind of hit the panic button because uh, I hadn't been in, in, in a classroom setting since high school. You know, and I'm 26 years old now. Um, so I was really, really kind of worried about it, but I set that goal for myself. And uh, I'm happy to say that I dedicated myself every night to studying and doing my PT, and, and I graduated with honors. So that was one of the things that I would say, you know, kind of set back a little bit. Wasn't sure if I was going to do it. Would have been really easy for me to say, ah, you know, never mind. I don't have to be an honor graduate. Not that big of a deal. But it was a goal, you know, and, I, and I've always been kind of a goal setter and trying to find a way to obtain those goals. One of the things that strikes me, John, in your description, and I want to make sure the audience is tracking with, with what's going on here, is the difference between motivating stress, which we call stress, and stress that spirals us, brings us down, creates tension in our lives, and that's de-stress. And I'm listening intently to the joy with which you share your inspiration for motivational stress and how you like to be challenged. I think one of the things most people don't realize is that humans, by our very nature, are always in a competitive mode because it's kind of a, if you will, a survival challenge. And I think it's fascinating as you're telling the story uh, that, that you are one of those people, and I'm sure many people who are listening are one of those people who gets motivated by being challenged. When you think about your career and you think about a time, uh, and, and we may have to go to break here in a minute, but we will come back uh, to this story uh, if we have to go to break. I want you to think about a time in your career when you perhaps were, were in um, the height of your, uh, your, your public safety challenge. You were actually on a mission that you'd planned for uh, with your team. You had all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And uh, you were all ready for this. This was something that you had really made a plan for, were prepared for, uh, knew it was going to be a challenge, but you were, you know, you thought of all the uh, the the trap doors and the back doors, but something happened during that mission that derailed everybody. And I want you to think about what that mission might be, uh, and then tell us a little bit about the setup, what you did to get ready, and then what happened that took you off track. 
Yeah, I, I can think of a couple uh, right off the top of my head. Um, I'll start with one, and if we have to go to break, we can continue after. Um, as the SWAT team commander, I, I was appointed the SWAT team commander as a patrolman. First time in the history of our department that a patrol officer was the, the commander. So I felt like I had a, a, a lot of eyes on me. Um, but we, we trained really hard. I had a great group of guys uh, that were willing to work really, really hard. Uh, we had a, a drug op that we were getting ready to do. It was an upstairs apartment, which was always created a little bit of more difficulty because it was upper level in an apartment. Um, but we had a we had a really good plan. Uh, we come in the morning of, and I have a couple of guys that were specifically trained to be our our shield guys. And for whatever reason, as as luck I guess would have it, both of them were sick and couldn't be there that morning. So we're wow. I look at I look at one of my team leaders and and. I was like, hey, and he said, I think I can do it. I think I should do it. And I said, I, I agree. So we put him in that position. Literally, um, we, we all kind of cross-trained, but he was a team leader. He he, would, he really didn't just tote the shield first one in too often, other than in a practice situation. And we go up to that apartment, we breach the front door, and we immediately exchange gunfire. Um, you know, something that we weren't, that we didn't expect. But hindsight now, you know, we ended up, uh, Taking the suspect into custody, he was. Uh, we were able to treat him. Uh, none of us were hurt. It was a successful mission. But I remember as soon as we breached the door and the gunfire started, I was like, "Oh no!" You know, and and but it was the right call. I didn't. We didn't know it at the time why we felt like he needed to be the one doing it, but he was, and and he immediately returned fire, and we had a successful mission. And one of the other things that was really, really helpful about that whole event that, that sticks to me still to this day is we had been doing so much training, live fire training and a lot of different training at different venues. And the guys, when we were debriefing that day, were like, you know, we were kind of nervous because we had a different point guy and we were kind of concerned. But once right. the gunfire happened, training just kicked in and we were ready to go. So that was a real positive that could have been a negative. Do you think when you, you know, now that you are assigned as the, you know, the, the lead training coordinator, do you think you actually think about that when you are positioning different kinds of training? Is that, do you believe that that really impacts how you want people to be prepared? Absolutely. I mean, not just on the, on the team, the SWAT team, but the department as a whole, we've really kind of refined our training and we try to learn from those those past experiences and create training that's going to prepare the guys for that. So we, we do a lot of room clearing. Uh, you know, one of the things way back when, before I became a SWAT officer, I was just a patrolman and uh, some of the new officers just weren't, weren't very tactical. And, uh, and like you had mentioned earlier, instead of being prob- part of the problem, I wanted to be part of the solution. So I was able to uh, become a field training officer and I started training uh, the new officers and really try to put an emphasis on being tactical and, and doing things safely and tactically. And that's one of the things that we've really been able to continue to press on with our agency. Um, as Matt knows, it's a continuous uh, thing, you know, it's a perishable skill. And if we don't keep up on it, we, we start to get a little lackadaisical and sometimes we make some mistakes and, uh, you know, this is certainly one of those professions that we really can't afford to make a mistake. And training continues to train it or continues to evolve. And, and that's what we try to do. So we try to stay on the on the cutting edge of preparing the officers. Um, so I, I think that it, it absolutely has an impact on how we do things. 
Love it, John. Um, you know, as you're, you're telling your story, um, a couple things that come to my mind, and there's a acronym that I've developed, uh, fearless, which you hit on two of them in such a cool way. In fact, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm processing it right now. Um, but one is right focus, right control. And how do you get that right focus, right control to be fearless? You don't see it at the time, but the importance of training, you know, train, train, train uh, throughout my career. Um, also, a lot of reflections from other senior leaders. Um, you know, all too often we get junior personnel that don't understand the importance of the training aspect. You know, oh, I've done this before. I've seen this scenario before or you know, um, uh, you know, I got something else that I need to take care of. To have the right focus, right control, the R for fearless, is that constant training. It's that throwing any kind of environmental, any kind of contingency at the scenario to be able to execute at a precise level um, and to, to overcome the obstacle at hand, no matter if it's law enforcement, no matter if it's, you know, the executive world uh, challenges that you're going through, it's the training aspect. Now, I wanted to segue into the L of fearless, which is learn your negative thoughts. And I think is so key, which you shared, the, the, the after action report or the, uh, you know, just the debrief of the that, hot uh, the hot wash, whatever you call it in your organization, Learn your negative thoughts. You know, like you shared, um, you know, when you did your uh, your debrief, some of the comments were that, you know, we have a brand new shield guy. Holy cow. Now that immediately turns to negative thoughts, like this is going to go south. Or, um, you know, do we trust this person? Confidence, yeah. Confidence of that um, operation. Um, and to understand that we all think negatively, that's just how our brain works as humans, or as Cat likes to call us, humans. The <laughs> um, <laughs> reality of the human brain, it's, it's constantly looks at the negative, but also we try to be smarter. So as in this uh, example, this operation, um, you know, just understanding as a leader that the negative thoughts are coming, you know, they're full force, especially when you're up against such a, um, you know, uh, stressful situation as you know what you were encountering so to be able to go through that but also just to be able to identify the negative thoughts not only within ourselves when we're encountered with such a stressful situation but also when you're a leader understand that there's negative thoughts with your people yeah absolutely i think one of the the things that i've really tried to to focus on myself and, and pass on to the to the guys on the team that are going to be the future leaders, and in fact, are the leaders now. Um, that they're the, the team reacts to you, and and you have to be confident. And when you see that, and you sense in your operators that there's there's a little bit of confidence, or, or lack of confidence, or a little bit of fear, we've got to address it immediately. And we address it with we can't you know we can't blow smoke. We, we we've got to train. We just got to remind them. Hey, we did this. Remember, remember this scenario. Remember when we did this. We got it. We got it. So. I really think uh, one of the things that I've tried to do when I was the commander and that I tried to pass on to everybody was, number one, make all their operators thinkers. That way they can react and, and do the right thing. The other thing we tried to do was uh, make sure that they're aware of what's going on, and let's have a plan B. 
let's have a plan B. You know, it seems like a lot of things in my life have been plan B. You know, it's just, it's been, uh, whoops, that didn't work out. So what are we going to do? Well, plan B. So that, that's the thing. Uh, and, and it's it's really kind of done me pretty well, and that's what I passed on to a lot of my guys is, hey, let's be positive, let's have a plan B, but let's believe in ourselves. And we earn that belief by hard work. we got to make ourselves uncomfortable so when the uncomfortable situation arises, we're comfortable. You know, I, I love it, uh, you know, you sharing that. So I'm going to kind of, uh, for the audience, I'm going to kind of uh, take a different approach to that uncomfortableness. So if you watch, if you like football, if you don't, if you've seen the uh, new Netflix series, and I'm not a, I'm not advertising here, I'm not getting any payment for any of this, but there's a thing, there's a season called quarterback. And for Patrick Mahomes, who's a very, he's one of the best quarterbacks and his line of work, being a quarterback in the NFL, uh, one of the episodes talks about how his personal coach puts him through in his body, his muscles through some of the different angles, different twists, different uh, positions that are very uncomfortable. So that way, when he is in the game, he his body reacts more positive because it already felt that twist. It already felt that, that pain, and it doesn't you know overreact, and all of a sudden he gets an injury. And I'm, I'm using that analogy because it's the same thing with John is, you know, what I understand you're talking about, John, is we have to go through all that. Um, that way, when we are up against something that's unknown, um, or some, you know, all of a sudden you got to split second and go to a contingency. You're not just stuck in the pain. You're able to mentally, physically, uh, and successfully get through that that extreme challenge. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we we implemented on our team was a a, a more rigorous fitness test and a, a more kind of when we would do CrossFit. In the morning of practice, we're, we're a, only a part-time team, meaning that everybody on the team has an actual job as a detective, a supervisor, a patrolman. So we only get to we get to practice once a month. So we have to take advantage of that. So we cut out lunch. You know, guys knew that it wasn't a real popular thing when when we first implemented it, but they grasped it and got it. And then we started implementing this CrossFit stuff. Um, and I had to convince the guys. It took a little bit, but we had to convince them that it was a mental thing. You know, we're going to work out for 20 minutes, 20 minutes. Nobody's shooting at us. Nobody's trying to hurt us. Everything's safe here. The only thing you're battling is yourself. So we're going to do it for 20 minutes to get mentally tough. And uh, if we can do that, we can operate with our heart rate elevated. We don't get hijacked emotionally or mentally because we're used to operating. We're used to functioning with the, with our heart rates elevated and, uh, we, I think, you know, everybody finally started kind of buying in and seeing the benefits, and, and it made us better because then when we got into a real-world situation and things went a little sideways, our heart rates were elevated. We didn't get hijacked. We're like, okay, cool. I'm used to operating here. I'm comfortable here. We're going to make the adjustment and continue to march on. You know, one of the things that comes to mind uh, is when we talk about building confidence, uh, and building trust, that's what we're supposed to be doing in three dimensions. The first dimension is obviously practice, practice, drills, drills. 
that creates the trust and confidence in ourselves and in the other people we have to go into battle with, whether it's on the home front, uh, you know, in the field, in the office, everybody likes to know somebody's got their back. The second thing is how we are constantly feeding information and acquiring that information to allow all of us to feel competent, right? How do we do that in a training environment? And then the third piece is application. How do we apply what we've learned in a trusting environment? And right now we call that psychological safety. Creating that psychological safety is really the key in in my mind for everyone in today's uh, work environment, whether you're a hybrid worker working from home uh, and going into the office now and then, or you're a leader who's got a distributed workforce and or in law enforcement dealing with situations where you may have someone who is mentally ill versus a criminal. And as you think about the training, John, and you think about how much trust and confidence you're working towards, right, in, the, in these training uh, roles that you are, are leading, uh, one of the things I want to ask you is, how much attention do you give to being aware of the inside voice versus saying it out loud and the outside voice? Because we know that in the coaching world, saying something doubles your chances of being effective and successful with what it is you're trying to achieve on the inside. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's funny because I have a lot of internal conversations. Um, I, I try to talk myself through different situations to see what, what I want to do. And, and it's funny. A lot of times I'll be like, no, 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 no. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. Or, and sometimes I even talk out loud and rehearse that. Uh, sometimes that internal voice becomes external only to myself because I want to hear it and I want to see how it's coming across. And it's funny because sometimes it's just uh, your, your voice inflection and, and the things, the words that you emphasize that make a difference. But he also, I think you have to be cognizant of how it's being perceived and perception is such a huge thing. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to, t- to pass on to the, to the, some newer, younger officers, a lot of the field training officers, because I'm now responsible for making sure that all the new hires are trained properly. So I have to have these field training officers that are trained properly to train them. And we, I, I really put a lot of effort and time into making sure that they're creating a learning environment, try to create a positive environment without neglecting, you know, the, the safety issues, the big things, the big officer safety issues. But we want to make sure that that these guys are successful. So we want to keep them in a positive mindset. And sometimes that's difficult. If we got a guy that's struggling a little bit with a couple of things and we have to be on him, we have to figure out how do we get that point across without completely defeating them. Um, one of the things that uh, I think really helps hey, me hey, with John, that is that. Sorry to yep. We, hey, sorry to interrupt you. We've got to go to a uh, break here. Um, no keep problem. that thought. Uh, for everybody, thank you for uh, joining in, and we will be back with you here shortly. Thank you for being a part of Strategies for Turbulent Times. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
Results will always favor the peak performer. MagnusWorks is a cutting-edge mobile app to help you and your team build peak performance across 11 critical well-being domains to go from great to Magnus. MagnusWorks balances individuals with real-time tailor-made check-ins with pulse vibes to increase mental, physical, and emotional well-being. It spans every aspect of your daily life. Get started now. Inspire. Educate. Impact and transcend. MagnusWorks.com. That's Magnus, W O R X.com. How can you be brilliant in the moment, given the daily challenges you face at work and home? How can you enhance your strengths and limit your weaknesses? Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler's mission is to help people be the best version of themselves at work and at home with simple, trusted, evidence based tips and tools. They have combined forces, applying the powerful science of emotional and social intelligence with the latest in e-learning and AI technology to bring you the Emotional Brilliance Academy. Through the leading Emotional Brilliance Academy programs, they help everyday leaders like you balance your emotions to better connect with people, enhance top performance, lead your teams and your organization. The Emotional Brilliance Academy gives you a common sense approach to enhance your effectiveness and happiness both on and off the job. Sign up for the program, enhance your skills, and be your best self. For a free trial, go to freetrial.emotionalbrilliance.com. That's freetrial.emotionalbrilliance.com. EBA is powered by Fearless Leaders Group, the H2C Leadership Foundation, and True North Leadership. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Welcome back to Strategies for Turbulent Times. Have a question for Dr. Cat or Captain Matt? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Strategies for Turbulent Times. We are talking to John Basinger, who's talking to us about being the solution uh, in challenging times here. And we were talking about trust, building confidence, feeding our minds the right information, both inside and, uh, if you will, our outside voice coming in. And the reason I share that is because we know self-expression comes from self-perception. And self-perception leads to the best of interpersonal skills when it's accurate, which leads to better decision-making, troubleshooting, and obviously reduces uh, our stress. So that trusted voice inside and out is really important for us. John, when we, um, when we talk to you about something that derailed you and given your experience and, you know, 250 operations, can you think of another story where you were really in, in a, a bad situation and you were able to turn it around quickly because of that trust and confidence that had been built in the team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we were doing a, a, an op. It was a pretty good op. We were hitting four different target locations. We had multiple teams besides our own that were going to be a part of it. And this was something that we were doing with the ATF. Um, the main target was going to be be hit by ATF, obviously, since it was their op, but we had, we had a secondary target. 
So we had completely planned it. We had everything going. Um, it was the morning of the op. I come in at 1 a.m. Uh, I told my team leaders to come in at 2, but I couldn't sleep. I came in at 1. I'm marking it all up on the board. I got everything marked out. They come in at 2. We, we go over it all. Uh, the rest of the, the team and all the, the, the units that are coming to, to help, perimeter units and things, detectives, come in at 3.30. We're doing the brief. I get through the brief. I literally just say, okay, anybody have any questions? And my phone rings. So I answer the phone, and it's the it's the guy running the entire op. And he said, hey, how's it going? I was like, good. We're just finishing up our op. We're ready to hit our target. He said, okay, um, we got a little we got a, a little bit of a curveball. I was like, okay, what's up? He said, the main target is no longer at the house that we thought he was at. He's at a hotel in your area. Since you guys are comfortable with what's going on there, can you hit it? Sure. Oh, by the way, it's the same timeline. You got about 30 minutes and we need to be on target. I'm like, okay. So I hang up the phone and I put everybody like, hey, everybody take five, but don't leave the room. We pulled the team leaders up. I brief them about what's going on. There's a little bit of a panic, and I'm like, no, guys, we got it. So I we start assigning tasks to the three of us. We come up with a plan. We get a plan. Probably within seven to ten minutes, we're, we're going over the plan. We go out to our staging area. We pull up. We execute. We take the target down. We've got no one gets hurt uh, on our side or their side. You know, we but we load up. We drop him off. We release that scene to ATF. We hop back in our vehicles, and we go hit our what was our primary target, now our secondary target, and we go there, and we hit that one. And I thought, man, we've already died. In my head, as we're driving from one place to the other, I was like, well, there's my curveball for the day. We went from right. a secondary location to getting the primary target, and we did that unscathed. Cool. We got it. Pull up to the secondary location. Now, all the intel that we had received, there were – Maybe a couple teenagers, a couple adults, no dogs. We're ready to go. Get there. There's six dogs, four pit bulls, a German shepherd, and then a little bitty lap dog. And I'm like, ah. So we're talking about having to go to plan B again because I don't, I don't want to shoot a dog. You know, I love dogs. We have three dogs ourselves. That's the last thing I ever want to do is hurt a dog. But I also don't want to get one of my guys bit because we didn't do anything about the dog, right. you can't just assume that they were nice. I mean, we're coming into their house, so we were able to. We had to think again on the fly. We made a couple of arrangements, and next thing, we've got all the dogs out. Nobody's hurt. We clear the house. We complete that op, and everything's successful once again. Some guns and drugs and everything was recovered. All the bad guys we were looking for were recovered, and none of us were hurt. So that's one op that had a couple curveballs in it that you know could have really went bad, and we were fortunate that we were able to think on our feet and, and have another plan and confidence in the team. Uh, you know, I could have easily told the guy, Hey, I, I don't know that we can make that type of adjustment that quick. If we're going to keep the same timeline, um, we're either going to have to postpone the op or, or, you know, somebody else is going to hit it. But I had confidence in the guys. Uh, we've got a great, a great group of operators. And like I said earlier, we, we've trained them to be thinkers. We've trained them to be versatile and to be adaptable, and we were able to be successful, and I think it's all because of that. Well, kudos, and I, I'm sitting here, you know, on the edge of my seat, and I was also very, very engaged because we often hear operators that tell us stories about how, unfortunately, they were in situations where the dogs 
they were in the direct line of fire. And if not, they were attacking. And so to hear somebody really advocate for, you know, the love of our, our, our best friends, uh, you know, last week uh, we had a gentleman on, Steve Stoops, who really believes that uh, in our world, in your world, uh, sometimes uh, these non-human but very human companions are the only people he can rely on, and I'll call them people because they are our people. They're very little people. And it was very heartwarming to hear you uh, tell that story the way you did because sometimes it does not end that way. It, let me just kind of get to uh, a couple big questions before we have to start winding down here. And, and one is, in all these stories that you're sharing, I have to say your voice demonstrates this confidence and commitment to yourself, to your values, to how you want to inspire others, to how you see a professional law enforcement, um, I want to say just a career, that career that you've embraced, how you want that to look to others and feel to others, and that professionalism. Uh, I'm struggling for words because I'm uh, really touched here by the conversation because knowing uh, a little bit about you, John. I mean, we, we've kind of uh, been colleagues now for a couple of years. I think you're, you know, real close with Matt. But I think one of the things that strikes me, and I hope everybody who's listening gets this, is the importance of empathy. You know, we, and I say this in every show, we don't give love to each other and, and to the cadre of people who support us enough. And I think that's an important word for me, and that's why I always say I love all of you who are in this industry to secure our, our freedoms and our safety deserve so much more than you get. And I just wanted to give a shout-out to you, John, and to everybody who's doing this work because without you, the rest of us could not do our work, and I don't think you all get that, um, that love enough. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things, if you don't mind, I'd like to add real quick about that is uh, we all, we don't give that to ourselves very often. Um, you know, we're we're typically Type A personalities. Uh, we we push whatever's bothering us down, but eventually it comes to the surface. And uh, one of the things that I am excited about with law enforcement, with as many things that are kind of going uh, off the rails, you know, recruitment and retention is pretty tough right now. Trying to get people to want to be law enforcement officers across the country is, uh, is pretty difficult. And I think every, just about every agency across the country is in a shortage. But one of the things that I am, that I see as a very positive is we're starting to be more aware of how those things impact us emotionally. Um, and, and, being, and it being okay to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just want to add this. We also know that when we hire people, it's very important in this environment where 57% of agencies polled say that recruiting and retention is their number one issue, that we recognize how important an emotional intelligence assessment is. And that's because those 15 behaviors that you know we talk about, John, are key to any agency, but in different variations. So those 15 behaviors may have seven sweet spots for Indiana and your agency. A different set of those 15 behaviors and the seven sweet spots that are necessary will fit Philadelphia or New York or 
Florida's, uh, you know, Citrus County, whatever. My point is every agency has its own flavor of emotional intelligence. And if we don't take that into consideration, we may be hiring competent people who, you know, pass that PT test, who may pass their poly, their panel, and their psyche valve, which also costs an agency up to, you know, $5,000 just to get them in the door by using a tool like the emotional intelligence assessment for as little as a hundred bucks, we can preclude some of those people from, you know, being candidates. It doesn't mean we eliminate them. We preclude them from the possibility of bogging us down and bringing them up to speed. And so by knowing who we're bringing in, we can expedite the process. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think it helps us with retention because then we're going to get people that, you know, we're going to address the things that we need to address. We're going to be able to address some of the emotional needs that they have as a department. And we're going to be able to retain our officers, which is, you know, that's just as important as, as recruitment. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And even more than that is the decision-making. Because what we see is emotions impact decisions. If you have somebody who's got very little impulse control and you're trying to de-escalate, you can't teach that person to de-escalate. It's not a natural act for them. And I'm, I'm just being honest here. I'm sure people are, are, are questioning what I'm saying. But we've seen it over and over and over again. So you have to really recognize how much effort you're going to put into making that person the kind of law enforcement professional you need for your agency. And like I said, what works in a suburb isn't going to work in an inner city. But the bottom line here is you can save up to $300,000 right, in recruiting from making sure you have the right people because you get that person in your system a year later after field training and spending all that money in the academy and getting them up to speed and giving them insurance and, and employment, which they deserve, they decide this isn't for me. I made the wrong decision. And that money walks out the door, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. So We've had that a couple of different times. <laughs> you need I'm to be, call me, Doug. So I'm going to be the PI, the professional interrupter. So for the audience, I want to share just kind of a, uh, a true true story here. Just a, honestly, just a few days ago, um, you know, Kat and I were speaking with a uh, an agency. And just for an example of the emotional intelligence now, yes, you got this guy talking about the big E word, emotions. I wouldn't, honestly, I wouldn't have done it in 20 plus years of my career until now, understanding the importance and the impact it has on a successful career. Now, a few days ago, Kat and I were actually meeting with an, an agency. And when we're talking with one of the lineups, it, it just, it's such a beautiful example because one of the uh, officers, had 20 to 25 years in, old salt, and how he answered questions on how, what was going on as far as the stress, the, the stress and the, the energy and the, uh, you know, how the, the communication, everything was going on in the agency. Um, he had a, a total different way of looking at things. Obviously, 20, 25 years, he was confident. John knows that. He'd seen a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. He'd seen a lot of shit. And then another guy, another gentleman in the lineup spoke up, and he was talking about having joy. And, uh, of course, you know, to us old salts, we're like, what is joy? Like, what is, actually is joy? We've lived a life. We've seen a lot of crap, seen a lot of ugliness. We've seen some happiness, too. But our brains, once again, tend to gravitate towards the negative stuff. Well, this guy had only two weeks in. And so Kat, you know, 
being the brains of the group, uh, you know, she pulled it out like, look, you know, to bridge that gap of emotional intelligence and to have better communication and better camaraderie and to understand each other better is critical, like you you and John are talking about. So, John, you know, as, as somebody who's in charge of doing this for, you know, a major law enforcement organization, you can see that when communication between somebody who has, like you, 20-some years on the force who's seen a lot, and your stress is going to be more neutral because what you've experienced gets normalized, right? And Absolutely. It's just another day for you, whereas this young buck coming into the system, male or female, gets into a situation now where they are living their dream. They have wanted this and they can taste it. It's it's so new to them, and it tastes so good, and they want every bite, and they want to savor it. And the joy of being a part of that, serving their community, having a life of purpose, feeling valued, right? How, how do you make that communication work for both ends of the spectrum? And it's a different world for the new public safety professional, and you have to take both into consideration. And it's very hard to do that in this current environment. Any advice? It is really tough. And I, I tell you, uh, I went, we met at Tac Ops South a couple of years ago, uh, one of the best conferences that I've been to, not, not only because I met you two, but because of everything else that was going on there. But one of the things that I learned, and it's funny because uh, I, I was kind of embarrassed, honestly, when I learned this lesson that I didn't already know it, but the why, you know, explaining the why. Uh, I grew up uh, we didn't ask why we just, because I said, so we did it. I joined the Marine Corps. We didn't ask why we just did it because we were told to, uh, even when I got on the department, we didn't ask a lot of whys because it was conceived as being, you know, maybe disrespectful, but the truth is people want to know the why, and it's okay to want to want to know the why. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I've kind of adopted and I've tried to pass on to a lot of the guys in the agency is, when they ask the why, give them the why. In fact, don't don't even have to make them ask. Let's give them the why because they want to know. Let's all be involved. Let's all understand. And I think once we can start doing that a little bit more, we'll be more successful. One of the things that I've learned How in law enforcement. One of the things that I've learned. Yeah. Can hear me? One of the things that I've learned in law enforcement is we are slow to accept change. And I don't know that it's just solely in law enforcement, but I know particularly it is it is in law enforcement and you know there's a lot of times that we'll say well why do we do it like this well it's because we've always done it well that we can't we can't take that answer yeah. anymore either you know we're going to have well, to find better solutions yeah. that's that's the generational gap um you know and I, it's so in my face when you talk about that and that's what i share with groups i'm speaking about or speaking to and sharing is that we went from a generation of shut up and row that you and i grew yeah. up in and, you know, we didn't ask questions. And we were very calculated on the questions that we did ask um, for multiple reasons. I won't get into them. Um, but, but basically, it was shut up and row. And being a leader after growing up in the shut up and row environment to now it's the, you know, answering the why, I love that you said, you know, what, there's nothing harmful about that. But the toughest thing is, is when you grow up in a shut up and row environment is why actually do we do the things we do? Um, yeah. Now that's, I think, and I, I want to give it to the leaders out there that, that are listening. 
that is a good, that is a great opportunity to show some humility, show that you're actually human, vulnerable, vulnerable, and saying, you know what, let me get back with you. Nobody on that. likes that word vulnerable, but everybody knows who's who's listening. We have to be vulnerable in order to learn. If we're not, we're kidding ourselves, and then we're not really learning. We're just being challenged and showing off. <laughs> Well, I hate to say that that way, but we're you know we're we're but a also, couple minutes yes. to so close. My last here. piece with that is that you got to ask him the question. As somebody growing up, would you rather work for somebody that says "shut up and row"? I'm about to say "shut up," or says, <laughs> <laughs> or says, "Let me get back to you on this." See, now we don't get that. All right, I'm going to ask. Well, you we're going to have John on here again. We're going to ask you as we go as we go to close. What's your favorite sock? My favorite socks. I wear short socks. I, I listen to Stoops. I've known Steve Stoops for a long time. One of the best canine <laughs> handlers in the world. And I know he said they were sissy socks, but I, I got to say that's what I, other than when I'm working, I think I've, you know, between the Marine Corps and the department, I've worn long, tall, dark Nike socks, like he said, forever. And when I'm not working, I try to branch out a little bit and wear short socks. However, I do coach a wrestling team, and I had one of the female managers say to me, you have boring socks, so I, I may need to up that game. <laughs> well, we love you, brother. Stay safe. Love you too, man. man. I appreciate the opportunity. And call me. I'll help you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll need it. Love everybody. We love you, John. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next time. Please be safe out there and use this show, Strategies for Turbulent Times. We're here to help. Love you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Strategies for Turbulent Times. We hope Dr. Kat and Captain Matt were able to help you create a plan or simply steer clear of the unknown with ways to overcome challenges in your own life. Until next time, be brilliant and stay fearless.